Welcome to our True Crime, True Family podcast. Quarantine equals no life, so we've decided to start a true crime podcast. I'm Emily, and along with my mom, Kate, and our cousin Paige, we will be discussing popular true crime documentaries and cases. Due to sensitive subject material and explicit language, viewer discretion is advised. So, episode two of So, I noticed when you texted me about Gil the other day, you middle-named me. Because <laughs> I'm very angry that you like him. <laughs> I'm mad about it. I, well, need, I thought... need you to dislike him. Validation. I just thought he was, like, a very gentle man. <laughs> yeah, gentle. Do you want a gentle cop handling the like thing of your homicide like go be a traffic cop you would be the perfect school cop perfect. no like it's just his manner was just very gentle yeah to any of the words that he said that would be great except he says such stupid things that i can't be like oh you're a kind person like i'm like you're a fucking idiot and it annoys me and like i even like dan like true crime anything and two like does not listen to our podcast <laughs> so, like he knows thanks nothing. dan oh yeah really like he is like oh how's the podcast going i'm like well you wouldn't know you don't listen but well, like asks. even made him listen to like how mad i was one about Gil in general. I'm like, there are things I need to ask you. And like, I'm sure he thought I was going to be like, have you been texting other bitches? Like, this is how I came at him. <laughs> and I was like, if you were watching something and a homicide detective said, I became a homicide detective and it only took me nine and a half years, what would you think of that person? It's like looking at me, like, because I really think he thought I was about to be like, who is you know like sarah or like have you been texting another girl like this is like the the like velocity of like the way i questioned him and he was like what and i was like if a homicide detective was like yeah and i made a homicide detective and it only took me nine and a half years like would you be confident in that homicide detective and he was like nine and a half years from what though i'm like okay you become a cop and it's like let's work really hard for nine and a half years and then you get to be a detective and he was like that seems like a long time and i was like this is why we're married i love you you pass <laughs> but like the no, way wait, did I you google it? him he was like I feel like the right obvious answer is going to be like wrong and she's going to yell at me. (laughs) No, like, did you Google it? Did you tell me you Googled it to see like what a normal Yes, because like I was very like nine and a half years, sir. Is that like I rewound it once to see if that's what he said. And then I was like a decade. It takes you a decade. And then I Googled how long does it take to become a detective and it put two to six years and then I 
did more searches and it's like six years if you're really bad at it. So like it took him nine and a half years. <laughs> he, look, Paige, he acted like he went in there and he aced some like homicide detectives exam in three months. That's impressive. Three months, I'd be like, holy shit, you must be awesome. It's not nine and a half years, sir. No. First of all, like, why are you saying it? Let someone else say it. Like, let someone else be like, oh, you know that Gil? Like, it decades to become a fucking detective. Like, that sounds stupid. A decade. <laughs> a decade. I've almost been married a decade. <laughs> it's a long time. <laughs> Give birth. Give birth and have a 10-year-old and then be like, oh, it took you to figure out a crime? I've raised an entire person. I, Gil, just is. And I'm mad because people love Gil. Oh, my God. I think I just found a post where he's playing saxophone in a band. Oh, no. Well, he would. He looks like he would do that. And he'd probably be like, you know what? It only took me 25 years from the time I first picked up a saxophone to be able to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. I am fucking phenomenal. Hold on. I'm trying I'm trying to get confirmation that this is him, but I swear I think it's him. Oh, it's him. Oh, it's yeah, him. How do I send this to you? I'm going to send it to the True Crime podcast. Uh, and stuff? Uh, Instagram. Well, you're the DMs. Yeah. I DM'd it to you. The best 70th birthday party. Oh, God. That. Uh, Are you looking yeah. at it? So, wait, it's his birthday. He's like, look, for my birthday, I want to play at my own fucking. Birthday. No, I don't think it's his birthday. His dad died. It says, happy birthday, go his dad's dad so it's got to be him like name his kid a junior and be like you have a lot to live up to you better you know make a promotion in your career in under a decade or we're just gonna judge you god this is important dude in LA history look him up like okay I'm have to don't not <laughs> on his birthday post, man. Important dude in LA history. Yeah, what not to do? Don't shit on his birthday post. I didn't. I just thought about it. <laughs> Don't shit on it. <laughs> I clicked out of it. Thank you. God. So. <laughs> It's like 20 minutes in. Ew. What? Ew. Have you seen a picture of Richard Ramirez with his teeth? Is it the one where he's like showing, just showing his teeth and it looks like fucking like a nightmare? Yes. Yes. That was the only thing I knew about. Can you imagine like you think you're getting a documentary on what the fuck could be behind those teeth and you get all Gil Carrillo? Oh my god, I just sent it to you. Ew! Ew! 
He is scared. He is a scare. He he's fucking I scary. Know. Isn't that just... Yeah, brush, man, brush. Yeah, that was that was like the only picture I'd ever seen of him before I saw this, and I was like, oh my god, you know that guy's a nightmare, and I've learned nothing about Richard Ramirez. Except that he too is a motherfucking idiot. Who, um, yeah, like he easily could have gotten away with all of this. One and two, like you, I, I don't know. Maybe you're good at night when you like scare people, but during the day you got fucked up. <laughs> These people were like, "Uh, no, look, Gil." You can hold it over there. We're not waiting 20 years for this to get figured out. But here, I'm jumping ahead. So, it's episode two of The Night Stalker. And I wrote these notes where I did not know. I had not watched any of it. So, I'm like, episode one covered the entire life story of Gil Carrillo a detective in the Homicide Bureau, and very little about Richard Ramirez. It's that I'm definitely hoping for less Gil. And I definitely did not get my wish. <laughs> Episode 2 opens with footage from crime scenes. And from 1977. And they... I always think that crime scenes are, like, so scary to see. I don't they know are. why. Like even well, because though this, somebody even just in, died there. Yeah, I guess that's what. It, so I was gonna say, even like when you can't see anything, like like nothing graphic really. Like you just see like a shoe or like. For some reason, super creepy. If it's like their elbow is in it, but you don't see anything else of the body, that creeps me out. Yeah, but that's because it's a dead. Like it's because someone yeah, just died there. You know that. Yeah. So a reporter says two young paper boys discovered the latest victim on a hillside in Northeast Los Angeles. The body had been 15 feet down an embankment. It was a residential neighborhood. The victim was a woman 20 years old and the body was nude. Like, can you, well, like, I feel like I would have been traumatized as a child finding that. Could you imagine finding a dead body? I'm like, it's like, like, even now. No, I would be like hysterical. I'd probably be worse now than I would have been. I've thought about that, like watching documentaries where they're like, so and so found this body, and it's like, are you fi-? like, I would be traumatized for life, probably need to be institutionalized. Like, I'd probably also be mad about it, like, oh, really? Now I have to deal with all this? Yeah, like, I could not imagine just rolling up somewhere and finding a dead body. Like one day I was going to work and someone had gotten in an accident and like, nobody was like, there was nobody around the car. So I stopped. And then this other guy stopped and he was like, do you want to look in the car? And I was like, absolutely not. I was afraid I was going to find a dead body in there. I was like, no, I'll call 911. You go look. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, no, that I would be terrified to find a dead body. And like two little boys, like how old are these boys? Because you know, probably the first thing they're like, oh, look, that's a naked lady. And then like, oh, fuck, that bitch is dead. 
So yeah. Frank said he got a call at home and they said it was a possible overdose. They uncovered the body and Frank says you could see neck on her wrists and her ankles. And um, so Frank is Gil's partner and he's a detective in the Homicide Bureau. Um, and Frank is more tolerable than his partner Gil. <laughs> this wasn't an overdose this was a murder and it's like well yeah I mean I would think after you saw the ligature marks you would figure that out um we hear a news for 10 young women raped bound and strangled their bodies found scattered in hilly areas another early another news report not another murder but like early Saturday the body of 18 year old Paula Gwen Ward was found in a secluded love lane, um, a different news report was like the body of 21-year-old Carolyn Williams was found. And all these murders were attributed to um, a killer called the Hillside Strangler. And so Tony Valdez, who's a local reporter in L.A., explains that the Hillside Strangler case was a huge story in Los Angeles. 11 bodies, 11 women. Wo- women all of them dumped on a hillside where they would be easy to spot the bodies were all nude and all posed and um frank was one of the detectives in this case and so it ended up being that it was two people um kenneth bianchi and i can't remember the other guy but his last name was buono but so it was two of them, but they said that um, they believed that they were dealing with either cops or cops because there was never a sign of struggle with any of the victims. And outside of this, like I looked up because I was very mad that Gil was not aware that it was two killers. But when I was double checking that, it said that Bianchi applied for a job with the LAPD and went on ride-alongs investigating the crime scenes of his own murders. So, um, he probably did know a lot about, like, how cops would act, so he probably did pretend to be a cop. Um, but so, a news report says a palm print was found on the car of the 13th victim and 20-year-old Cindy Hudspeth. A different news report says, in California, a former security guard has been sentenced to life in prison for some of the Hillside Strangler killings. Kenneth Bianchi admitted to a Los Angeles court that he committed five of the so-called Hillside Stranglings. He agreed to plead guilty to the killings and to testify against his cousin, Angelo Buono. They both killed and conspired together and worked on the Hillside Strangling cases together. But so they didn't kill everyone together, but they both, you know did the same thing so paul skolnick says the oddity of it was there were two killers who were cousins figuring that out was one hell of a jab he's a reporter not a cop (laughs) the cops (laughs) didn't figure that out frank salerno was the cop to put it all together and people were impressed so frank says i remember telling gil that those are once in a lifetime cases and then all here we go again because they were in the Night Stalker case um, which like I feel like living in Los Angeles 
in the 80s would have been terrifying. Well, eight, 70s and 80s because of Manson. Well, yeah, you had the Manson. Like, ew. He's so weird. He creeps me out. I love watching things on on Manson. I do, too. I could watch, like, all of them a thousand uh-huh. times and not get sick of uh-huh. Read books, everything. Oh, yeah. I've read a bunch of books. I'm actually rereading um, Helter's Oh, right that's now. such a good book. So, Frank was saying, like, all of a sudden, like, it was like, oh, my God, here we go again. Like, it's another serial killer. So, summer of 1985, there was a news report. And it says, 105 for the afternoon, high tomorrow. 108, high desert. 117 in Palm Springs. And that sounds fucking miserable. I well, but you know what? Them. They don't have humidity over there like we do. So, does that make it not as bad? Yeah. Okay. Because that sounded, like, awful. Yeah. It's like a dry heat. It's very different than, than, uh humid heat and i'm right i wrote this was in the 1980s so you know that some cars didn't even have air conditioning and i'm uncomfortable just thinking about that Ew. <laughs> Ew. and i like i wasn't sure i just assumed that they kept bringing up the weather as if like that was like a contributing factor like it was so hot that people then <laughs> <laughs> frank says in effect hunting a man and I was like well thank you Frank like what do you think detective work is what do you think you're normally like trying to find so Gil says I've never been a hunter I'm a city slicker so I looked at it playing the game of Clue and I was like of course he did so Gil thinks we're all idiots who don't understand his reference and he's like you know Colonel Mustard did it with the gun in the kitchen and I was like well thank you Gil and I hate him. Frank says, you're trying to think like an individual that is not thinking logically. They cut to an old video of Gil looking stupid and clueless. So they had a serial killer that also abducted and assaulted but like let them go. Like that's so weird to me. So he used a variety of me. Like I with had a chance of like them not tying it together like that's why I think Ramirez was stupid like you have such a random things like like you're doing very like that normally if you like kill someone you don't just like let other people go yeah it, he just he couldn't kill the children which you know at least if we want to give him some kind of credit which I don't well, see, but the thing is like People that are evil, I don't know. The more I watch these things and like you read the true crime stuff, like there's something like you're, I don't think you're just born evil. It's like somebody did something terrible to you. Yeah. But then also, other people, like if you want to, like in some parts, it could be not worse that he didn't kill the kids. Oh my God, this sounds so terrible. And I don't, I don't know how to phrase it right. But you know, that kind of thing could have so many long-lasting, like, effects on children. Well, see, that, and that's what I, at one point, I wondered, which is why, like, I probably would have liked to know some of the things about Ramirez. But, like, I wondered, was Ramirez not killing, like, 
born evil, he definitely became very evil. And I wondered if he didn't do those things to kids and let them live so that they would be fucked up like him and people later in their life. (sighs) Which is awful. But that's kind of because I think like the natural, like a normal person would look at it and be like, oh, he couldn't bring himself to hurt the kids. And I was looking at it like, no, that motherfucker is rude and evil. He did that for a reason. Oh. But so he did, like, he did not have, like, any kind of M.O. Like, he would use guns, knives. He would strangle them, manual strangulation, blunt force. Uh, old people young people men women like he didn't have a power he was just like willy-nilly like i looked at you and you looked at me the wrong way you've got to go i don't even uh, think it was looked at you and you looked at me the wrong way i think he just chose people by random like yeah no that's what i mean like there was no like it was just kind of like oh i caught you oh okay well you made it easy for me to follow you here we go yeah well, and like that Maria Hernandez that he like shot her and it bounced off her keys, which what are the odds? And then like he ran into her again and she's like, you already shot me once. Do you need to shoot me again? And he's like, all right. Yeah. And he let, just let her go and, and, and walk like, down the street and walked away. Like, I'm like, oh, no, we're not leaving any witnesses. Um. And so, you know, like, I guess that made it harder for them to look for him um, because there's not, like, any pattern to follow. But I would think if you were, like, a serial killer and evil, you'd, like, research, like, cops and stuff. So, like, I would think that some serial killers would be like, oh, I'm going to do it random on purpose like this because I know it should be harder for you to put together. Um, yeah but they didn't have like research like that back in the 80s like it wasn't as easily uh, that's uh, true in your hands as it is now with us yeah so like to the general public it was like any be a victim which was like terrifying and unsettling because it's not like you can be like oh you know what you're like an 80 year old woman don't go out after six because that guy will, will get you yeah and so, July 6, 1985, it's day 111. So, we see a woman on a couch watching TV, and she says, John was asleep in the back bedroom, and I ended, I had ended up asleep on the sofa in the living room. So, Lorraine Rodriguez is one of um, the Night Stalker survivors, which sometimes I don't know what would be worse. Like being killed or being a survivor. Yeah. Yeah. So Lorraine tells us, I woke to a very loud noise to which I responded very annoyed. John, because I thought he's going to wake up the kids, which would be me. I'd be like, you asshole. And it's like, not him. (laughs) She said immediately, I knew it wasn't John. Like there was just, there was no answer. It's just still and just fear like terrible fear she said I didn't know if something was in the house or something was half in or out of the house or if it was out of the house but something was there and I was terrified to move and I feel like I'd be worthless in a crisis like that like I would just sit there and cry 
no, you wouldn't. Fight or flight would kick in, and you'd you'd you it it would be different. See, and I don't think like I think I would make a lot of noise, but not want anybody to find me. I would make the noise because I'd want Dan to hear that something was happening and get the kids out of the house. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that he would like get that. He'd be like, "Come, like, what's going on?" See, like, I've never been in like a huge crisis to where like. I've had to, like, you know, be like that. But I've had, like, things happen to where, like, because, you know me, I can be a spaz sometimes. But I've had things happen where, like, you really have to take control of the situation. And and I've kind of, like, surprised myself with my reactions of it. So, like, you don't just, like, turn into, like, this huge pussy and, like, curl up and just lay in the fetal position. That's true. Everybody yes, has a fight like, or flight. When, thing, when something's going wrong, it's like I don't. It's some autopilot thing, and yes. like then everybody it's like, has. Oh, I did the right thing, but I never really thought about. It. But I've never really been in like a life death kind of thing like that. Me either. Yeah, I wasn't trying to say that, but like I've had things happen to where like something had happened with a friend one time, and I was like, usually I like handle things pretty like you know spastically but like I just looked at her and I was like okay do we need to do this do we need to do this what do we need to do like it was like you know oh yeah no I I knew what you were saying like when I was thinking about I was just thinking about like what if somebody came in to kill what I do Mm -hmm. like not taking into consideration like yeah you go on autopilot yeah and like god knows that you're too stupid to handle this alone (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like you, yeah, everyone has that, that in them. So yeah, I don't see that. Like, I I don't worry about like situations where like things like. Well, and I guess uh, that's uh, a good way to look at it. Like your, your thing is going to kick yeah. in. Like, I, I just never, Dan's very much like that. Like Dan's very like things will work out however it's supposed to be it will be and I overthink everything so I would assume that I'd be doing that in a crisis (laughs) but like oh my god Dan is so funny like like one time he like came in and he was like I really thought we got robbed and like he got in from like a super late and I was like is everything okay and he's like when I came in the house he was like I came in the front door and there was this thing hanging on like from the light and I didn't know what it was <laughs> and, like he was like as I walked up it like fell down on the ground and I couldn't tell what it was it just looked like a like a lump and it was a bat <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh my god so he had stood there like what I wouldn't get had the ring back then and I could have watched this what did he do well so he like stood there and he was looking at because he's hoping he would like fly away and then he's like well maybe it's dead and so like he but he didn't want to touch it or anything so he had like opened the door like that's what happened like when he was opening the door that's when it fell and so like the door was unlocked so he like just kind of reached over and like pushed the door in and as he was like stepping over it, it flew. 
like Ace Ventura when he's like running out of the cave. He's like, they're in my hair, they're in my hair. Like, <laughs> but it didn't get in the house. Like he just slammed the door. <laughs> That's a better reaction than my ex-boyfriend when we had a bat in the house. Oh God. Did he like shit his pants and cry? No, he pushed me into the wall. <laughs> He's like, get her first. <laughs> and then I turn around and that motherfucker's laying face down on the floor. <laughs> um, I had a boyfriend do that, like push me into like, <laughs> like he didn't know what it was and he pushed me. I was like, you are a bitch. <laughs> And like no, it wasn't like... even scary. I don't even know what he got scared at. <laughs> so what had happened was I was getting ready to leave and we walked out and it like flew past our heads and we didn't know what it was because it was dark. And then all of a sudden he realized what it was. So he pushed me into the wall and I was like <laughs> what the What fuck? was that going to do? Yeah. <laughs> And then I turn around and he's laying face down on the floor. And I was like, that motherfucker didn't even protect me. <laughs> You're like, this is when I knew it was over. <laughs> and then I was like, what the fuck are you doing? I would have been like, You're a real bitch. Like, even if I was just as terrified, I'd have been like, What is your bitch ass doing down there? <laughs> Dan is a good one. Dan is very protective. Like, I really wish like we had such a like catch everything on video call back in the day because I have like no video. Like, there's so many things that would have been hilarious if we had it on video. Like, remember when you got thrown through the wall at Grandma's? We were playing spoons. Yeah. (laughs) Nolan. Oh. So John Rodriguez says, typical husband, I'm like, don't bother me. I got to get up in a couple hours to go to work. (laughs) And his Chiron said he's a sheriff's deputy, L.A. County Jail. Like, could you imagine attacking a cop's house? That's bold. But that guy lived, didn't he? Yeah. Well, he didn't. um, So let's see what. Um. He thought it was just a noise. Don't worry about it. And she was insistent. She said, no, I heard the window. So I went and got my gun and I went around the house. And I wrote, oh, man, if I ended up being right, Dan would hear about that forever. Like the rest of his life. I just, it'd be like a random Tuesday. But remember the time you didn't believe me and I got attacked by a serial killer? (laughs) Lorraine says, I walked behind our dining room table and as I walked around the table a window that we had not opened ever because it was all the way up and I wrote fuck that <laughs> John says jammed all the way up solid Lorraine yelled to call the police and John yelled I am the police <laughs> <laughs> so John went and got his flashlight and started shining it out the window and he saw footprints down in the flower in the mud they had watered so much the night before that the ground had been saturated. So when he pushed down with his feet to shove the window up, it left a perfect print. I'm like, that motherfucker was strong if that shit was painted shut. And he's like, oh, here we go, all the way up. Yeah. Because, like, you know, like, if he had to do it loud. Yeah. So, um, they didn't, see, like, they weren't physically attacked. 
But so a unit got sent out and he showed them the footprints and the guy looked at them and said, you know what? I think it's the same guy. And so Gil and a bunch of crime lab people showed up to the house and Gil was working graveyard shifts at that time. Like graveyard shifts, like I thought detectives just like, I mean, they have hours. So I thought they usually just worked on Day shifts are like when something happened, they were on call. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought too. So Gil just remembered that John Rodriguez just said. So that was like a waste of time. So Gil says he's met by some good young deputy. He found the box and covered up the footprint, or he found a box and covered up the fr- footprint just in case the wind blew or anything. And, like, I wrote, anybody else get the feeling that Gil has probably trampled through his share of crime scenes, ruining every bit of evidence? (laughs) John says, as soon as Gil got there, I realized how serious the whole thing was. Really? Like, do you think you knew who Gil was? Because I don't think that I would know. Gil said, look, I don't want to scare you, but you are very lucky this guy didn't come in your house. I said, what do you mean? He said, this guy's bad. He's evil. He has done some things that you don't want to know about. Lorraine says they were very lucky and fortunate. I said that would also have to move. Yeah. So the footprint was made from, but that, I mean, that is crazy. He probably saw something. Like I'd imagine he broke in and he was going to do something and he realized he was in a cop's house and, and left. Mm-hmm. So the footprint was made from an Avia shoe. And Frank says that Avia was a very uncommon shoe. It had just started being manufactured. Gary, Jerry Burke was a criminalist for the LA County Sheriff and he was assigned to trace evidence. Retory. So he said, I needed to know everything I could about the shoe. I went up to Portland, Oregon to speak with Jerry Stubblefield, who was the inventor of the Avia shoe. And I was like, um, that seems like, couldn't you have called? Like, that seems like an, an unnecessary expense. Like, oh, I need to travel to Portland, Oregon to talk to someone about a shoe. <laughs> so he provided me with shoe soles that I could use in comparison to full impressions or partial impressions. And I have heard again, why could this not have been accomplished with a phone call? And he said, I was able to determine that these shoe prints had been caused by an aerobic shoe as opposed to a coach's or basketball shoe. It was definitely a size 11 and a half. He also provided me with spreadsheets of sales data that I brought back. They learned that on January 9th, or yeah, January 9th, 1985, um, 1,356 pairs of Model 440 Avias entered the United States from Taiwan throughout the U.S. Frank says that they told them they believed it was a black shoe based off the victim's recollections. Only six black 11 and a half period. Five of those went to Arizona and only one came to Los Angeles. Frank says he could have left us a signed signature or like, or someone could have bought it in Arizona and like just ended up going to Los Angeles. But like that is still like very small world. And I wrote Frank seems real confident for someone who chose Gil as his partner. (laughs) Gil's like, we made a chart. Fuck right off. Gil said they looked at every involved murder in Los Angeles County. They were trying to find a connection. One of the cases that came up was Mabel Bell and Florence Lang. 
so May 29th, 1985, and this was day 73, two sisters in their 80s were attacked and beaten in their hillside home in Monrovia. A gardener found them in their bedrooms days later. Their home had been ransacked. Mabel died, and Florence Lang was hospitalized in critical condition. Frank tells us that the suspect entered through a rear door. Mabel had been taped up using electrical tape. She was taped on a four-poster bed. And, like, for one, gross. For two, like, that duct tape, like, wouldn't it rip right off? Electrical tape? Yeah. No. I don't no, know. Electrical that... tape is very strong. I, that's what I'm saying. It would rip her skin right off. Oh, no. It probably wouldn't rip her skin off, but it, it would make it very, very... Sen skin? Um, it, yeah, it would damage it, definitely. But it would make it too hard for her to, um, to uh, get herself free. Oh, impossible. Oh, impossible. It says she was taped spread eagle on a four poster bed. Oh, and I wrote, damn, think her hips snapped. God. <laughs> but this is awful. She was sexually assaulted and beaten to death with a hammer. Like that it seems one awful. Like 83, and you're going to have sex with me? Like, rude. <laughs> and like, then you're going to kill me with a hammer? Can you even imagine the sound that would make? That would take forever. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm. Gil tells us that Mary's sister was barely alive. There was a partial shoe print on an alarm clock, and the lab was able to match, match that partial print to the Avia shoe print. Frank says the interesting thing was how comfortable he got after killing somebody. Um, he, um, he would take the time to have a snack. Like he said, that's a pretty sick individual. And I wrote, well, maybe killing him hungry. <laughs> Gil- <laughs> he worked up an appetite. Oh my god! Gil tells us that was the first Instagram written in lipstick on the wall. It was also on one of the victim's legs, which is weird. So they had a lot of questions and they thought it might be like a Manson copycat. And I wrote Manson is very fascinating to me. (laughs) A man says, which when I was writing it at first, I didn't realize it was Ramirez, but it's Ramirez. And he says, Satan is a stabilizing force in my life. It gives me a reason to be. It is a driving force that motivates me into doing things. I dream about this shit. Like he sounds super creepy. Frank says that they come up, came across an old attempted kidnapping case. The victim fought the suspect off and escaped. Suspects left in a Toyota. He committed a traffic violation. LAPD motor officer saw the violation and pulled him over. Um, and I wrote fucking Gil. I was really hoping they would skip Gil. <laughs> anyway, he got pulled over and didn't have a driver's license. So the officer got him out of the car and made him put his hands on the hood of the car as he patted him down for weapons. So the motor officer says, stay here. He went back to his motorcycle to get out a citation book. The suspect hears on the motor officer's radio a broadcast of his attempt to kidnap that young girl. Frank very lonely says, 
So he's like, feet don't fail me now. And he draws a pentagram on the hood of the car and escapes. He took off running because the car was a stolen car. Like, why are you taking the time to draw a pentagram (laughs) before you run away? So Gil and Frank went up to the Northeast Division and they specifically said, we'd like to print this car or process it. So LAPD took it to an impound lot and they said, don't worry about it. We'll do it. So they basically get stonewalled and they lost the opportunity to possibly come up with some evidence that would lead them to the killer. So Frank tells us there were no days off. It was physically and mentally exhausting. Having been through it before helped a lot, knowing how these things pan out eventually. You're in it for the long run. You got to stay down the middle. I mentioned this to Gil a number of times, which, and I also think it would be a little bit annoying for someone to keep being like, oh, like when you're frustrated and someone's like, oh, it gets better. It's like, can you just, can I just be like negative for five minutes? Like, could I just say it? And so Gil tells us, Frank said, we need each other to ride through the highs and pick ourselves up in the lows. That's what partners are for. Every ounce that I had to give, I gave. Like, Gil, Gil just, Gil at all. So July 7th, 1985, day 112. And Gil tells us that he was home asleep. His family isn't at the house. And all of a sudden, I wake up at 3.30 in the morning. I'm sweating. I'm scared. Killer's in my house. And I was like, what? And he's like, I pick up my gun and I walk out my bedroom. I mean, my shoulder position. I'm sure I've always got my back up against a wall. And I wrote, if this turns out to be a bad dream, I'm going to be extremely unhappy. So he's like, I'm turning quickly. Breathing was erratic. If I call the cops and there's nobody there, they're going to think I'm nuts. And I was like, also a bitch. Gil says, I cleared the whole house like that. Power down, put my gun back, turn on the TV. John Wayne movie was on and just watch a movie. All of a sudden the phone rings. Scared the bejesus out of me. They tell me to call up my friend Linda Arthur. And I said, she's lady who has a crush on Gail, in my opinion. And I forgot about Gil's bad habit of calling coworkers friends at all times. Like, no although this lady probably would want to be his real actual friend so linda says gil you ought to come over here because the lady across the street from me just got raped and i think it's related to what you're working on and i said why the fuck did gil tell us that entire story about waking up at 3 30 a.m if no fucking body was in his goddamn house like Gil fucking sucks. Like he made up that story to make himself seem interesting. I'm no. I think it. what it was is it consumed his whole life, and he probably was dreaming. And and so, you know, when he woke up, he was just in a panic. You know, we've all had dreams where we woke up in a panic. Fuck, I did it today. I woke up um, today yeah, thinking it I was Monday. Like when you got sat down, like if you're sat down and interviewed about your life, you're not going to be like. I woke up, I cleared the house from top to bottom, I put on a movie, and then my phone rang, and my friend from work called to tell me that a lady got murdered or raped or whatever. Like, he's so full of shit. Like, he just wants to be involved in everything. Like, it would be like, there's the McDonald's murder. He's like, you know, I've eaten at McDonald's before. It's like, yeah, everybody has. You fucking idiot. (laughs) So, Linda's version is, 
I had friends over, so we went out to the hot tub during time about three o'clock in the morning. We got out of the hot tub and went in, and they went into bed in the guest room, and I went to bed in my room. She said, five or ten minutes later, my girlfriend gets up, and she says, Linda, someone's calling you. I said, no, I have the phone right here. I didn't hear the phone. And she's like, no, like someone's yelling your name from outside. So her neighbor, Sophie Dickman, was calling, like, could you imagine being named Dickman? I feel like people would just chokes all the time. She said, I hear my neighbor, Sophie Dickman, calling Mrs. Arthur, Mrs. Arthur. So I ran out in the backyard and I climbed up on a little wall and I could see through the top brick and I could see her bedroom window. And I said, are you okay? What happened? And she said, I've been robbed and raped and I'm handcuffed to my bed. And that would be terrifying. And why, if it's like 118 degrees, are you in a hot tub ever? <laughs> like, True. what in the world? So Gil tells us that the suspect had lifted out the cat door and got in the house that way. She had pulled the bed over to the windows so she could call for Linda. The attacker told Sophie not to look at them, at him. He also put a glove in her mouth and a pillow over her head. Linda was freaked out and very frightened because anybody could be a victim. Like, I would... I would think you have, like, a weird sense of, like, security. You would either go one way or another. Like, you'd have a weird sense of security working, like, in any capacity with law enforcement. Like, oh, I'm safe. Like, nothing bad's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Or you're just completely afraid of everything. But, like, that would yeah. be very freaky to have something randomly happen next door to you like that. Well, there was the cop who... Who he That's broke into their house. Like, that would freak me out more than anything. Like, he, like I would worry that he t- was starting cops or like people yeah. in law enforcement. And like, what if they, yeah. she went to, he just went to the wrong house and he was really supposed to be at her house? So, mm-hmm. um, Pearl Carrillo says that it was hard to sleep a lot of nights. So, Pearl seems like she's like, hmm. Like, I don't know what's going on, and I'm not very confident in Gil. (laughs) So, Gil had gone over to Sophie Dickman's crime scene. When he got out of there, he called his wife, told her to get the kids up, and they could all meet for breakfast. Pearl says, I think he got through that breakfast without getting a call. And it's like, why are you telling us this much about your data? Like, this, this documentary should not be, like, all the things that Gil does in his life. So Gil went back to his in-law's house and I sat there and I was tired and I told my wife, let me sleep for an hour. I got to meet Frank at work at 12 o'clock. She says, you're going to kill yourself. You can't keep going like this. Pearl says Gil was short with her about it. Um, I said, I bet that was a shock. Gil seems like a big bitch. He says, she has no idea what I'm doing. She has no idea as to the when I'm coming home, what's going on? And I wrote, well, maybe communicate with her, you fucking jackass. Gil told her, if you're not going to wake me, I'll call the office and tell them to wake me in an hour. And I was like, oh, you can fuck right off. Like, you're not going to be Gil Carrillo and talk to me like that. Hmm. I would be like, you go and do that, you ungrateful asshole taking a goddamn decade to get a promotion. Your candy ass has the nerve to catch an attitude with me who's like at home doing the real work, raising your fucking kids. Like, mm. and you're going to do this in my parents' house? You better get, a, like, a fucking clue. Like, 
Like, fuck you and your stupid job, you fucking asshole. Like, set an alarm clock, you fucking loser. Seems infuriating in general. Like, he better be, like, the nicest goddamn person to me if I was married to him. Like, don't catch an attitude with me. (laughs) Ever. Pearl says, I remember he lifted up one leg and started taking off his shoe and his pager went off and called him out to another case. And, like... Oh, poor fucking Gil, who chose this life in this job. Like, I have zero sympathy. And, like, maybe solve the case. And you don't have to keep getting these calls. Because you know what? If he's in jail, he's not killing people. (laughs) And, like, if he cut out all of his unnecessary words, he would probably get, like, four hours a day. (laughs) I'm like... You like you just know that Gil showed up all grumpy and bad out of shape. Like, oh, who fucking died? I was trying to sleep. <laughs> so Monterey Park, July 7th, a six-year-old grandmother, Joyce Nelson, and I said she had some big hair in the picture they showed of her. It looked like a helmet. <laughs> she was killed in the night. So Colleen Nelson, Joyce's granddaughter, says, hearing my grandmother's name mentioned on television, it was always Joyce Nelson, a 60-year-old grandmother from Monterey Park. And I would think she's so much more than that. I remember I started appreciating just the clothes she wore. I always thought she looked so cute. She was kind of petite. She was probably only about 5'2", maybe weighed a little bit over 100 pounds, but I always called her spunky. She had this spirit in her, just a fight that I think that's what kept her going as a single mother for many, many years. But you know what? I think a lot of people look at their grandparents like that. Like, I guess it's kind mm-hmm. of like older, so you, like, when you're young and, like, rude, you're like, oh, old people must be so weak. So, like, anything that they do, it's like, oh, my God, look how strong you are for an old lady. Mm-hmm. But, um, so Don and Patty Nelson, so that's Joyce's son and daughter-in-law, and I'm assuming Colleen's parents say she had a house that she bought on her own and it was her treasure and she was a lady who would go out into the front yard into her pair of black slacks white blouse and i said this is random but i don't like the word slacks (laughs) just call them bands (laughs) he said some kind of saddle it's like slacks it just sounds so like slacks like go put your slacks on and be a loser (laughs) and he's like some kind of saddle shoe or something just doing cartwheels all over the place out front and I was like what is the point of this like why can't you think of anything better to say about your mother Colleen says she necklace she wore it all the time and she had promised me that when she passed away that she wanted me to have the necklace since I was the firstborn granddaughter and like, I do remember grandma gave me something and said that because I was the firstborn granddaughter. I can't remember what it was. I think it was a ring. I have a ring that grandma, um, she saved one for all of us. Well, yeah, yeah. But she just, I think she, what she was saying was like, when she found out she was going to be a grand, like the first grandma, she set it aside or whatever. Oh, she uh-huh. said it to me. Like, cause I think it was the same thing. Like she saved something for everyone. Cause like Vince got stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, she said I remember telling her that I never wanted to have her necklace because I never wanted to be without my grandma and I said oh that's sweet 
why like I would much rather know the life story of these people why do we have to get Gil's life story and it's not like they do it to everyone involved in the case it's just Gil <laughs> so like d- name this like too cool Carrillo and then at least I would have known what I was getting into <laughs> So, on July 7th, 1985, Patty tells us Colleen was having her 14th birthday party that same day in the afternoon, so we were rushing to get home. When we got there, Don's on the driveway, and I thought he was having a heart attack because he was white as a sheet. So, he looked at Colleen and said, your grandmother was murdered, snuck into her house and killed her. And I was like, oh, like, could you imagine, like, happy birthday? That's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And they showed the crime scene photos, and I was uncomfortable. She was, like, crumpled. I'm like, could you imagine having to find a dead body than your mom? That's awful. Oh. Like, I would, yeah. I don't know that I'd get over that. Oh, I'd and never poor get Don, over it. He's like, my heart was dying. There was blood on the bed and a lot on the floor. And he's like, that's the last thing I got to see of my mom, all that blood. And, like, he's, like, my mom was always afraid of being raped. She had this, like, predestination concept in her mind that eventually she would be a rape victim. And, like, my stomach started hurting, but she fought him, and she didn't end up getting raped. So then I was, like, oh, at least, like, that would be the only thing I could hold on to. Yeah. But Colleen says that he was very angry when he beat her, and he literally stomped the side of her head and left a footprint on it. Like, that's insane. And that's, like, the thing with, like, some of his stuff, like, all of it's bad, but some of it's, like, so overkill. Like, you have to be really angry to even, like, think to do that to somebody. Yeah. And it's, like, not like these people, like, you broke in to just kill them. So it's not like these people did anything. So Gil says Joyce Nelson was murdered in the early morning hours of July 7th. He killed her, but he didn't satisfy his need for sex. He then went less than a mile away where he entered the residence of Sophie Dickman. For a killer that's committed. Like, I keep laughing at her name. I'm not laughing at the crime. So they were looking for a killer that's committing two crimes in the same night. They found a, a shoe print on concrete in the Nelson house and it matched all the other shoe prints that they had so they had five murders in ten days which I mean I would think at that point it's some sort of a compulsion and like oh yeah it's like frenzy and you would think that he would be leaving more evidence behind like because I think there's like frenzy killing it's like you can't like you're not you can't pay attention or be methodical about it So Frank says that the media really got involved after the Nelson murder. And Gil says by this point, the news media who had gone to the murder of Patty Elaine Higgins saw his 40 later at Mary Cannon's house. And they said, what are you doing out here? Well, we just happened to be in the area working the other one. And we said, well, we'll take it. And I was, "Um, how about you say no comment? Like, or like, I'm busy. Don't talk. Fucking (laughs) Gil. He's all like, then they see Frankie Gill in Monterey Park. Like, fuck off. And please explain to me why in pictures Frank looks like a normal detective, like in a suit. And Gill's dressed in like a sheriff's uniform. Like a traffic cop. Like, why? Can you buy a suit, Gill, please? Gill says when the media saw him and Frank at Joyce Nelson's house, they're saying, oh no, there's something going on here. They went on a news frenzy. 
Like, can go somebody get Gail off my TV? Maybe they're saying, "Oh, hey, there's another murder." Like, maybe that. <laughs> maybe it's not that Gail's there. So Ramirez was insanely random. Sometimes he raped them. Sometimes he didn't. There was no pattern, rhyme or reason. And Gil's like, from our department alone, were at least 200 police officers working on it. And it's like, maybe don't say things like that. Because, one, that doesn't sound very efficient. And, two, like, how come if you have 200 police officers working on it, it's like you're like 115 days in and got don't have shit. So they were looking for, like, really, there's 200 people working on it, and we know nothing. Does that, does that, like, give you confidence in a police department there? Well, but this was the 80s, and they did not you have know what? I think the forensics. to argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't have the forensics like we do now. So think without forensics, if you're going to tell me that 200 people are working on something and we're like six months in, that maybe those 200 people aren't smart. <laughs> so <laughs> Frank and Gil said they followed up on every piece of information they received. And Frank's like a lot of them lead you nowhere and a lot of them mean nothing. And like Every piece of information that you receive, like, I feel like you could call and be like, oh, I think um, the killer is at McDonald's. And, like, they, like, went to that McDonald's. Like, there's no reason. that That's all the tips they got. And they're like, look, we are running everything down. It's like, okay, yo, but you didn't have to order, like, a bunch of food with it. So, Kill says, <laughs> former wives calling in that their ex-husbands did it. Like, could you imagine being that petty? <laughs> like, oh, another bitch got killed. It must have been my ex. <laughs> so, Gil tells some other long-winded story about following up on every clue, and it's like, I mean, it's not part of your job. Like, maybe get good, get better yeah. at sifting through bullshit. Uh, that would be like another hint I could give you. So July 8th of 1980, and like, let's not forget that Gil also went to college to be a detective and still took him nine and a half years. Oh man, you are just no, never going to get off that. Don't tell it to me like you did something impressive <laughs> and like you are like slow. <laughs> oh my That's gosh. very annoying to me. They said it like he, like it was nine months. Like nine and a half months, he solved every murder we had. And it's like, no, it was like nine and a half years and you didn't solve shit. You just got to be allowed to look at the evidence now. So Frank um, got some call. It was Laurel Erickson. And so she was a Channel 4 news anchor in Los Angeles at the time. So Laurel asked him about the shoe print they had. And Frank's like, what shoe? And Laurel says the Avia. Frank's like, this was a very vital piece of evidence. If the killer changed his shoes, they wouldn't be able to identify the signature crime as his. So Frank told Laurel that she couldn't do a story about the shoes. And Frank, the captain, and Gil was pissed and very bent out of shape. Gil was worried about a case and Laurel's worried about a news story. It's like, maybe worry about whoever is telling her 
about the shoe story because it's one of the 200 people you have yeah. working on you can't manage to solve like it's not laurel's fault that she got the info and she's gonna go ahead and do her job and run with it and especially given how this ends like it seems stupid that like the second you all released information to the people they're like oh richard ramirez that motherfucker oh here we've got him for you five hours later so Laurel got an exclusive interview with Gil and Frank about the investigation, but without any details as to what connects it. So Gil, who's he, he's still pissed about it. He's like, she brokered a deal that she would hold on to the shoe information. So as long as she got a chance to interview us and it's like, um, instead of being bent out of shape about it, maybe just be glad she didn't just go on the air and run the information. Like she tried to work with you. So maybe like, Get your panties out of. Go take a nap, you fucking whiny bitch. Like, are you for real? That's what you're mad at. Maybe go yell at the 200 people that have all this information that are just telling the news about it. Like, he's the worst. Laurel says a 46 year old Frank Sergeant Frank Salerno won't say anything that might tip off the killer. He and his partner, 35-year-old Gil Perillo, have too much at stake. Last time it was the Hillside Strangler. And Salerno says that case is going to be a great advantage in cracking the one. Serial killers have one thing in common. Generally, in a serial murder, what occurs is they might relocate, but they don't stop killing until they're either caught or imprisoned or killed. Like, um, good job. Like, wasn't there a case where the guy's like, look, I took a 20-year break and you still didn't, like, was it BTK? Was it that one that he did that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, it might have been. I do, but I don't know which one it is off the top of my head, but yes, you're right. I would be, like, so tempted to be, like, rubbing that in their face if I were making that, doing their interviews now. Like, oh, remember when you said that? So, um, Gil still sounds salty as he tells us he wanted to bring her up on extortion charges. Like, have several seats, Gil. Like, just have all the seats, okay? Like, you're not going to sit there and act like some someone else is a jackass because she did what you asked her to do and didn't, like, release the information and she asked for an interview in return. That's really extortion. You fucking moron. So Frank is asked how Laurel knew about the shoe print. And Frank's like, some detective told her, I'd like to know who. I'd like to personally thank him. Like, what? Like, and I half expected to be Gil. Gil being like, oh, well, I told her. I told her it was a secret. And then we had to do an interview with her. And I'm fucking pissed. Like you, that would be very on brand for Gil. So Gil says the pressure was on to find him by the public, by the sheriff. Um, Sherman, oh, Sheriff Sherman Block. I guess it's like the police chief who Sherman Block is, and the mm-hmm. peer pressure from your colleagues. Like, oh, shut up about peer pressure, you fucking idiot. And he's like, and the pressure you put on yourself, it could mean saving family members, my mom's life, my kids, my wife, um, 
he's like, we had to stop the madman doing all this. And like, if I were his wife, I'd be like, oh, so I'm behind your mom and the kids? Because <laughs> he was like, my mom's life, my <laughs> kids, my wife. Frank <laughs> dealt with it better than I did. And I was like, I have a feeling Frank deals with most things better than Gil does. Frank says, I don't know if it ever gets completely turned off. I just try not to think about it. I pull in my driveway. I just shut it down. <laughs> I was like, that sounds really healthy. He says, I know that's the case with my family. And like, that, w- that would have been hard if he was my dad. Because <laughs> I would have been like, so tell me everything. Gil yeah. says, my kids were about 7, 10, and 13 years of age. And Pearl says he was working 17, 18 hours a day. He would come home, get a couple hours of sleep, shower, and Pearl dealt with the three kids alone. And, like, she sounds annoyed, but, like, girl, that might have been a blessing in disguise. Could you imagine Gil at home? Gil was probably annoying. Mm. Gil says he was short-tempered, which was unusual for him, but he was mad and angry because she, Pearl, didn't understand the magnitude of the pressure I was under. And I wrote, oh, fuck you. Like, you are not really going to, like, all of this that's already annoyed me. And then you're going to blame your wife like she did something wrong. Like, oh, poor you. Frank says, everyone deals with it differently. Unfortunately, some guys crawl into a bottle. You don't want to crawl too deep. There were many nights we'd end work and we'd go have a drink or two. There were a couple bars in Chinatown where we would debrief. And I was like, well, 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 why not? Like, let's go get drunk and debrief in a perf in a public place. That sounds perfect. Like, but then you guys want to be like, I don't know how the public found out that the shoe. <laughs> like, I like I, I hate them. So one was a place called Flora's. And you'd have to knock on the door and wait. And pretty soon somebody on the inside would open up a little bit. Look out at you. If she recognized you, she unlocked the door and let you in. If she didn't, then she just closed it. And that was it. You weren't going in. And I was like, is this a bar or a brothel? Like, because it sounds like that just, that's weird. And that does not sound weird. No. It sounds like a whorehouse to me. <laughs> no, it's like a private club where you can purchase horse. <laughs> oh my god. And so he's like, we could talk shop in there. I don't know. It sounds weird. So only time you get peace and quiet between Frank and myself was when we could both go and get a drink which sounds like a weird thing to say so Pearl tells us I was worried about his health I was worried because him being so tired and with a couple of drinks under your belt driving home I was so afraid he was going to fall asleep at the wheel like she certainly wasn't afraid he was going to get in trouble for a DUI because this dumbass is like oh I'm a cop and I'm going to expect people to follow the law but I'm not going to Gil says what Nobody got DUIs in the 80s, man. But are you talking, yeah, maybe not law enforcement. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so Gil says he'd go home and the wife would be like working late and he'd be like, yeah, then get in bed. And she would like sniff him and be like, you've been drinking, haven't you? 
he's like, it didn't make for a good relationship. And it's like, I bet. Like, first of all, if I'm home with your three fucking kids 24-7 and you're going to be rude to me at my own parents' house and like snappy like oh I need all my sleep and then you're gonna crawl into bed after you went out drinking I'm going to be a bitch to you like don't tell me how tired you are but you have time to go get a drink fuck right off <laughs> like you would not be mad <laughs> yeah, yeah I'd be I mad like it because you don't like yourself. <laughs> it's just funny to <laughs> it's just funny to like just hear you just keep going about because i really like anybody that listens to this which is like me and you and valerie um but yeah but he could be like i saved a kitty from a tree and you would just be like go have a seat sir no i'd be like well good for fucking you i'm glad you did something of value See, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Exactly. Because don't shove down my throat. What a great person. Like, if he came on and was like, look, I was mediocre and I, like, it took me nine and a half years to become a detective, my tone would be completely like, yeah, no, I mean, he didn't. Look, he might have been slow. It took him nine and a half years to become a detective. Let's not expect him to solve his first case right off the bat. But no, he wanted to come in like, some smart person because it took me nine and a half years to get my fucking promotion. First of all, I feel like in a lot of jobs, if you haven't gotten promoted in nine and a half years, you're probably getting laid off. And so like like it's all how you present the information to me is how I come at you. Had you been normal and not did something special, I never would have like felt the need to say anything again. Pearl's like you have to to have a lot of patience being a police officer's wife she looks exhausted and I'm sure like getting more mad doing this interview like thinking about what a fucking loser husband he is so I'm telling you like had they started this like he's like look you know I was 28 before I ever got in an outstanding work evaluation so like look I did the best I could it's like okay I feel bad for you come in like look I finally got recognized at 28 for my outstanding evaluation that was the first time my dad said he was proud of me by the way it's like remember the first episode when he said that before yeah. I hated Gil, I said, yeah. that's mean. Your son was in a war and saw combat. How did you not tell him <laughs> that you were proud of him before that? But then when I heard the rest of it, it's like, okay, well, now I understand why your dad was never proud of you. <laughs> Frank says, when we first learned of the case where a suspect had been stopped in a stolen car and written a pentagram on it and ran away, we had been told that car would be processed and printed by LAPD. But they say, okay, you can have access to the car. It's still being stored or impounded, and it had never been printed. And at that point, we discovered that the car had been stored outside in the sun. Gil says, by that time, um, and then by the time anybody got to the car, skin and everything had been burnt up. And I wrote, that is gross. 
And so he said no value in the car as far as prints go, but left inside the car was a little deep plastic case and there was a business card in it to a dental office in Chinatown. So Frank and they found out that their suspect, whoever he was, was just in July 3rd. They conducted their interview around July 8th or 9th. So they had just missed him by five days because the car was never printed, which I would be mad about. If I were them. So Gil says the card was written under the name of Richard Mena. He gave some bad address on Brannock Street in East LA. So Gil was able to retain x-rays from that doctor. And he took them to a very close friend of mine who is a dentist. It's like, no, you took him to the dentist you go to. And you're just trying to say he's a very close friend of yours. And I said, what can you tell me about these x-rays? He said, I can tell you that he's going to be back. He's got an impacted tooth. It's going to be killing him pretty soon if it's not already. He'll be back. We've got two of our own Asian officers. What? Oh, they were saying he's be back. So they took officers and stuck them in the waiting room for Richard to come back. And they were there every day, which is kind of rude. Like, why? Why did you feel the need to say Asian officers? Why don't you just say we've had two officers? So anyways, they were there every day and that was the end of episode two. And I was like, I guess this is okay, but I still need less Gil. I, I know all about Gil's bullshit and nothing about the Night Stalker. <laughs> I said, I guess is a good documentary if you like Gil, which sadly I do not. <laughs> I said, hopefully not <laughs> as much Gil in the next one because Gil is the worst. And look, just spoiler alert, wish now did you watch this before we decided to do it no see I did so this was a rewatch for me See, and I liked it the first time too well yeah because you didn't have me to explain to you why you're wrong (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Thank you for listening to True Crime True Family. Follow us on our Twitter at TCTFP and Instagram at TCTF Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us where you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please leave a rating and review. We appreciate all the feedback. Join us next week.